Well, it's good to be with you again and to have this opportunity to to look at some more at the common ground on which we stand as a church family, but also with other churches of Christ in Victoria, across Australia, and as Lorraine shared last week, across the world. So far, we've paused to look at the centrality of our identity, the essence that we follow the teaching of Jesus and that as followers of Jesus, we are orientated by and led by Jesus, who is the head of this church. We're also united as a diverse group of followers here and diverse clusters of followers who meet as part of the body of Christ across the world. Not just churches of Christ, but other followers of Jesus, Christians who are led by the unifying Spirit of God. We have diverse names and diverse styles of worship. Sterling, writing about this, said that while it's important to be a church member and to attend church and to believe in the great truths of the Christian creed, none of these are life-giving or saving in itself. Rather, we are united in our belief that that, that we have a broken relationship with our Creator God because of our sin that we desire to replace the role of Yahweh God in our life and stand in God's place. Restoring this broken relationship is not something that, that we can do in and of ourselves. So God the Son took on flesh. And as both God and man, Jesus took on not only our sin, but our guilt and our shame, but also the consequences of our sin. He willingly sacrificed himself died on in our place as we remember today around communion and he rose on the third day to pave the way for us to have an eternally restored relationship with creator god last week we acknowledged that creeds or as one of you put it devoting ourselves to the apostles teaching is really important but it does not save us it is a personal relationship with a person of Jesus that saves us. We can and we should use summaries such as creeds and statements of belief that many of the churches of Christ churches put on their websites to um, teach and to challenge us, to help us to grow in our faith, but never as a measure of who is in with me and who is out with them. These summaries may be used to express our faith, but not as a test of your or my salvation. But we recognise that along with these expressions of faith comes a common ground on which we journey at Northern, and that is our expression of grace. One of the slogans that we value um, is expressed in the, the common ground of in essence, uh, sorry, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, love. But the reality is that this isn't worth the breath that it's uttered with or the paper that it's written on. I think the technical term that we could actually use for this sort of slogan is it's a load of codswallop unless we're prepared to live it out even when it costs us. But before we rally to this common ground, it's worthwhile taking a moment to consider what this means and the costly grace 
that it calls us to live out. From the beginnings of the Churches of Christ as a missional movement came a desire to peel away the layers of tradition and to return to the New Testament foundations of the Church. Without replacing current traditions with culturally distracting first century traditions that could shackle us to irrelevancy. So who decides what is essential and on what line something falls, whether it's an essential or it's a non-essential? Well, one of the things that consequently we stand on common ground about is that where the Scriptures give no clear guidance, no one should bind others to their views. Our essentials are drawn from the Bible, especially the New Testament. Yet we understand that people reading the same Bible can come up with two different conclusions about what is essential. Consider for a moment women in the church. Are Paul's statements that women must wear a head covering and are not allowed to teach universal truths such as are essential for us today? Some people say it is essential, while others say it's a non-essential. Now, I pastored in a church that during its time in, its, in, its, in the 60s, not that I was pastoring it then, but during the 60s, it was a leader in recognising women in ministry. Yet for a period of time, it didn't have any women in uh, preaching roles in the life of the church. New people joined the church and we started again having women preach um, occasionally throughout the year. And these new people reacted negatively, pulling me aside on several occasions, telling me that it was wrong to allow this to happen. For them, it was an essential. For me, it was a non-essential. They became destructive in the church and refused to accept our position as a church. And as tough as it was, we ended up having to resolve ourselves to say that, hey, listen, perhaps you need to find another church, one that holds the same views as you. The challenge is that when we, we look at these things of essentials, we all have blinkers on when it comes to the difference between what is an essential and what is a non-essential. If you've got your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians in the New Testament. Some people hold that speaking in tongues or baptism or weekly communion are an essential while disregarding, holding up their hands to pray, greeting each other with a kiss. Well, Clive and I are okay on that, aren't we, Clive? Um, uh, tithing or having a common purse. Now, if you haven't heard the, the term common purse before, it's where people basically bring their weekly earnings together, pool their money and distribute it as there is need. And so while we stand and say, this is an essential, a couple of lines later it talks about something else that we say, oh, no, 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 but that's not an essential. Some Christian traditions recognise the salvation value of what we do or our works or our obedience. Paul, when writing to the Christians in Ephesus, reminds them of an essential. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians as we and we'll return a few times to Ephesians this morning. In Paul's letter, he writes in chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can 
do the good things he has planned for us long ago. The salvation essential is that God, God's work of grace saves us when we believe. It's not our work that saves us. Nothing. There is absolutely nothing that we can do that can earn our salvation. Nor is there anything that anyone else can do on our behalf to earn our salvation for us, except for the person and the work of Jesus. As a recipient of God's grace, Paul calls us to express grace to others. Paul continues to write in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, a passage that John read earlier. Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father, who is over all and in all and living through all. This passage speaks volumes on how we should express grace where there are differences while reminding us of what holds us united together as one body under the headship, the leadership of Jesus. Verse 3 says once again, Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body, one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord and one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father, who is over all and in all and living through all. We remain committed to unity with other churches who follow Jesus the Christ. However, we also recognize that in our own failings and shortcomings, we cause division over non-essentials, divisions when we thought there ought not to be any. It's been interesting to read through the Churches of Christ history and the closeness that we've had to Baptists over the years. And the issues that were once things that kept us apart during talks about combining are now by and large gone. In the 1960s, the Churches of Christ entered into discussions with what would become the Uniting Church of Australia to consider if we should join. Papers were written and circulated at various times, yet at the time we differed significantly on matters surrounding baptism, the priesthood of all believers, autonomy and the independence or interdependence of local churches, local church governance, which resulted in us not uniting. It may also be confusing to some of you um, that there is another group who go by the name of the International Churches of Christ, who see themselves set apart and um, have their origins from the original church. They see baptism as key to salvation. They sing without music, and they emphasize that they are a non-denominational group and believe that all other churches are in error of Scripture. So when we differ, when we have a different perspective or a different viewpoint, either with other churches, with other denominations, or within this church, We are to rally to this common ground, 
by expressing grace to others. Once again, our value is in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. Acknowledging once again that there are times when we have and when we are still in the future, we'll get things wrong. We are reminded by Paul of how we are called by God's grace together and therefore should, as recipients of God's grace, express grace to others. Ephesians 4.2 reminds us once again, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. We do not approach others as their superior or that we have it all correct. But instead, we change our posture to one of humility as we engage in a conversation that should bring about a conversion in us, as we hear their views, as we understand more about who they are, their story, their journey, it should have an impact on us as a result, converting us. Not necessarily that we're going to change our view, but that we have a better understanding of others and we desire the best for others. Not according to us, but according to to the eternal message of Jesus. As Sterling puts it, so churches of Christ have a responsibility to listen to other Christians. They have always believed that God continually has new truth to break forth from his word. From the beginning, they have desired to dialogue with other Christians so that together from the scripture, God's truth for his church may be discovered. We should always be cautious when we hear terms that suggest that the church or as us as Christians have a superiority over scripture. Williams, one of the past principals of what is now known as Sterling Theological College, wrote this. The acceptance of any kind of absolute authority in the church um, through tradition or the guidance of the Holy Spirit in the community commits us to an undue subjectivism. History has shown us that when the church assumes an authority in its own right, shut up within its own claims to be guided by the Holy Spirit, the result result is departure from the primary New Testament teaching, confusion and division. This is the way that doctrines of baptism, regeneration, infant sprinkling, uh, penance and the like have come about. The guidance of the Holy Spirit in the church is integral to our faith, but it is guidance that must be tested by the New Testament. Williams continues, New facts of revelation will not be given by guidance of the Holy Spirit in the church. A distinction must be made between revelation and illumination. The guidance uh, guidance of the Spirit will give us illumination whereby we gain deeper insights into the revelation and better application of the revelation to current life. Things that we have missed come to light. Things that we have misunderstood are truly shown to us. So in our desire to better understand Scripture for our application today, rather than sitting in authority over Scripture, we willingly place ourselves under the authority of Scripture. 
We seek to discover the truth that God, who is overall and present in our world, that God seeks to live out in and through us as we seek to continue to express the gospel of grace. Returning to one of our founders of the Churches of Christ, Campbell, we do well to follow his lead in understanding God's revelation through Scripture. First, we consider the historical circumstances of the passage, of what, why, when and who. Who wrote or said it? To whom was it written or spoken? What was the reason for saying or recording it? At what period was it said, written or said? What were the circumstances of those to whom what was written or said? And what did the writer or speaker expect the hearers, readers to understand by? Is the language literal or figurative? Is it historical, a parable, an allegory? What is its context? You know, we have four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John each written by different people for a different purpose with a different audience. If you read through the very first of um, the start of Luke, you'll read a little bit about the audience that Luke was writing to. And if you read Acts, you'll find that Luke was writing in Acts as well to this same person. So it gives you a bit of a context to say, oh, okay, so there's something going on here. Why one of the Gospels talks about the kingdom of heaven while others talk about the kingdom of God. One was written to Jews, where to talk about the kingdom of God would have been a bit offensive or a bit off-putting, whereas to talk about the kingdom of heaven wouldn't have been so confronting to them. And so there's different nuances, different ways, different reasons for why things have been written the way they were. And when we understand that, then we can step back from it and say, okay, God, what is the eternal truth? What is the truth that you want to speak to me about today in my life? and also in the life of us as our church. In our humility, our humility, and with our own history, our biases, our personal preferences, our influences, we know that we don't have a monopoly on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, nor will we always get it right. So we continually rally to this common ground of expressing grace to others, and hope that when we differ, they might lovingly express grace back to us. Not so that we can stand for nothing, but that when we seek to stand, we can stand together once again, as Paul calls forth in us. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. We have an opportunity to respond to what we've been hearing today, to the service in general, but also to this time in God's Word. And there's a couple of questions that I've got for us to reflect on. Are there times when you have differed in an ungracious way on a non-essential? Then use this time to ask God for help in responding with grace, maybe over things in the past, but also in the future. Ask God to help keep you sensitive to times when you might place yourself or your views as having greater authority over the teaching of Jesus and the New Testament. Ask God's help in expressing grace to others from different faith or Christian traditions who may hold a different worldview 
to you. We've got some music played. There might be something else that God's been bubbling away, talking to you about during this time. Let's use this time to respond to God. God bless you.